like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years. Flex 7 outer shell fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforced technology, Flex 7 outer shell fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Seconds count when responding to an emergency. Minutes save count when documenting your day. Emergency networking makes records management easier and faster with its Fire and EMS solution. User-friendly, complete online and offline functionality, highly customizable, all at an affordable price. For more information, please visit emergencynetworking.com. And welcome to tonight's Politics and Tactics. We got a great guest for you that really needs no introduction. He's probably published more books, more articles than any other author for fire engineering. Not only does he publish based off his years of command experience, but he's also one of the few intellectuals in the fire service who edits his own work, which is something that is just a lost art in the fire service. So I've had the privilege to write with them, do DVDs with them. And no matter what endeavor Anthony Avillo puts his name on, he always just makes it that much better. So it's an honor to have Anthony Avillo on with us tonight. I got Dave Polykoff, our co-host. And Anthony, welcome to Politics and Tactics. Thank you, brother. Thanks. Haven't been on uh, this show in a long time. Um, I remember I was one of the inaugural guys with this show, and we've been doing this for, you know, now I'm with Duffy. We've been doing this for quite a while. Dave, uh, good to see you, brother. Absolutely. Um, thank you. Always a pleasure, Frank, to have me on. And, uh, you know, it's uh, and editing my own stuff. Um, no, they edit it. They just don't edit that much. No, but see, I've, I've, when we did the Firefighter's Handbook, we wrote things together, and you edited all my stuff before it was you introduced stuff, yeah. it to English. So I have appreciation for you that most people wouldn't, Anthony. Oh, man. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that when I went from the first edition of my book to the second edition, the first edition was like, you know, I think barely 300 pages. The second edition was almost 700, and I said, well, they'll whittle it down. They'll edit it down. They didn't edit anything. I was like, oh, my God, now I got a friggin' table leg. And that brings us to, to really where I want to start this conversation off with is now you're on the fourth edition. Is that correct? Yeah, I just submitted it about, uh, about two weeks ago. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it, it, it's a smooth, you know, ride to the publication of the book. I, and when do you so, expect that to be out? Uh, I don't know. I'm, listen, I'm hoping FDIC, but I, I really don't think that'll happen. You're talking, you know, that's like only six months, you know, so maybe next FDIC, maybe Christmas, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I know they, they always have a lot of books in the till and, you know, the turnaround time, especially for, you know, uh, a book as big as the one I, I usually put out is uh, I tried to whittle this one down and it's just not possible. You know, you're throwing all the other things in, all the new building construction and new findings in the, you know, fire behavior. And, you know, I, I just... A lot of different things, newer things have gone into this book, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm real proud of it. And I'm hoping that uh, that it comes out sooner than later. But, you know, I, I you know, as you as you know, I, and your book is great, by the way, man. Mm -hmm. um, I understand, you know, the you know, the, the process, you know, been through it. Absolutely. Now, you, I had the honor of being introduced to Chief Flood, who I thought was a remarkable individual, somebody who mentored you and somebody when I needed quotes for my book, I reached out to Anthony Avillo and I said, hey, do you got like a couple of quotes you can send me? And he sent me a full sheet of Chief Flood quotes. So I, you know, just like Thomas Edison, borrowing brilliance. When you see something brilliant, you're like, you know what? This really says it all without saying too much. And I used a lot of his quotes. Did you use any Chief Flood book uh, quotes in your book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, since he was my mentor, there's a whole little section you know, cause he, he passed away in between the third edition, the fourth edition. He passed away about uh, a year or, or two after about, about a year and a half after we uh, published Full Contact Leadership. And uh, so, you know, he's 
uh, he's never very far from my writing, you know, and yeah, there is a bunch of quotes in there. And, you know, right in the beginning, the quote I use is the quote that you used in your book. And it was command competence, command confidence is based on command competence. Now, yes, command confidence. I I can't screw that up. Command confidence is based on command competence. I believe that's the quote. No, absolutely. uh, Because if, if you're not competent, you can't be confident in what you do. Dave, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, absolutely. And we find that, and we've talked about it several times in, in the past, where you have guys that shoot up the ranks before they ever get a chance to really feel comfortable in each rank before they move up. Next thing you know, you know they're, they're in the battalion vehicle and they're making, again, like I've said a thousand times, split second decisions based on really crappy information. And uh, they don't have the bandwidth mm-hmm. or the experience to be confident on the fire ground. And to me, it's a recipe for disaster. So the, the quote is 100% on target. And Anthony has one of the best books out there, especially if you, you know, the chances are you probably read one of the editions during one of your promotional exams. It was probably one of the required reading books. But if you're a firefighter listening to this, don't wait until you become a command officer to start trying to learn all the complexities and nuances of command. This is the type of book you want to get you know, when you're a firefighter so that you can use it throughout your career because competency really, it's amazing how many people out there do command wrong. And all you got to do is look at our line of duty deaths and you're going to see that it's part of commands failure that leads to a lot of breakdowns on the fire ground. Um, I'll start off with just one and I'll have Anthony and uh, Dave weigh in. But one thing I see a lot of times is I'll see a chief arrive on scene and this happens everywhere in the country. They take an incident man uh, command class. They arrive on scene and they establish operations for the incident. And then you have the operations chief or whoever's filling that role. There's no rank in incident command. There's only function. So you have that individual running the fire. And then you'll have the incident commander start talking over operations to people who are in front of that operations officer. And it just it breaks down the entire function of command. Once you declare operations, you're the incident commander. Essentially, you're dealing with everything that's behind the operations. You could be dealing with logistics. You can be dealing with water supply issues, the press, the liaison. But the actual operations for that incident now all has to go through that operations officer. If you arrive on scene and you're the chief and you still want to be active in all of the decisions for operations, don't claim operations just establish divisions and stay in command of the fire. I could never understand that. And why has the fire service missed that point? Um, I'll start with Dave. Yeah. I, I, when I teach my class, uh, you know, my command under fire class is one of the first few slides that I have is, you know, you're, you're showing the the flow of how a fire ground is supposed to operate. Bread and butter fires, not large four or five alarm, you know, fires, but but something that, that is handled by one or two chief officers, and then you make your groups and divisions. And I tell them, you know, once you establish operations, you have to ask yourself as the incident commander, what's your job? Because if you don't have liaison finance, um, you don't have you know, PIO issues or anything like that, you really don't have a job anymore because operations is running the fire ground. He's calling for additional apparatus. So you basically pulled yourself out of as being an incident commander. So that operations section chief is designed for large, complex incidents where you have more than just the fire going on. You may have a rescue sector. You may have extrication sector. You might have, you know, um, where that incident commander is going to have to start focusing on larger things of getting the community back together, getting finances squared away. The, the next operational period, it may go beyond 12 hours, but for, for simple blood and butter fires, operations, it shouldn't be uh, one of your first things you're going to pull out of your hat because you basically pulled yourself out of the job. Absolutely. And in New Haven, we weren't big on division. Well, we didn't even use incident command when I started there. And I actually brought in Anthony Avillo and a couple other key players to start training the department on how to use incident command. And now the department has gotten much better. There's still some work to do, but we we are really on the path to success. So, Anthony, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, you know, um, it's kind of interesting. 
we only go to an operations chief in, in, in very specific incidents, situations. The, the, the first would be um, sort of like a complex incident, an exotic incident, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, confined space, high angle rescue, which we do a lot of with the cliffs, uh, hazmat, things like that. We would, I would designate an operations chief or I would be operations. Um, or if we were at like a four, five, six alarm fire, the chief of the department would show up. He would become command and I would become operations and I would continue to maintain all of the operations. Um, other than that, we didn't, we never really did that. You know, I see that a lot in, in different departments where, you know, I, I'm on the fire scene. I'm command. You show up now. I, I'm, I'm, uh, superior to you. So I'm going to make you operations, but you're standing right next to me. Command operations. Go ahead, command. Uh, I mean, like we're right next to each other. It, it never made sense to me. Uh, you know, what we do is I'm going to take that first chief and whether I take command from him or I'm there before him, he's a division commander. He's going inside. You know, the next chief is going inside into an exposure, whatever it happens to be. I, I, I don't think when, when you run the incident command system, uh, well, I think, and, and I've done three, four alarm fires where the chief of the parliament never showed up, and, and I handled all of that. I was not only, I was just command. So because I didn't have an operations chief, that meant I was operations and command. So I handled all that, fire watching, but I would also delegate that stuff out. Like once, you know, once things start to sort of, we're starting to stabilize the incident, uh, I would, I'm, and we're starting to break down, I might assign a, uh, um, uh, a de-escalation officer, you know, to start to help us start to put away the toys. You know, I may assign somebody to something else, that sort of thing. But I, I was never really big on operations unless, unless you really needed to have it there. Um, and again, it's just not the way we operated, you know, um, but th not, that's not to say it's not wrong or it is wrong. No, it's not wrong at all. It's, it's, it's part of the incident command system. And just as you were saying, if you do it properly, where, uh, the incident commander steps back and, you know, now he's dealing with, with, with press issues and fire watch and America and the red cross and, you know, all those other things, relocations, those things, you know, that has its place, you know, where then the, the first incident commander could be a deputy chief. Now he's operations, you know, so it, it just depends on the situation and everybody's sort of got to be on the same page. And, and the biggest thing is you got to announce these things. If you don't announce who's in charge of what, then nobody knows who's in charge and, and people are going to different places and different people. And now you have six people in charge, which, you know, is worse than having no one in charge. Absolutely. And I think that that's important is that if whoever's in command, if they assign you, let's just use a division, for example, if they assign you a division, no matter where you work and your department uses incident command and they don't announce your radio designation what companies are responding to you? You know, the the book says they what your tactical objectives are. We know, you should know what your tactical objectives are in ninety nine percent of the the calls. So I'm okay if you don't announce that over the radio. But you got to at least announce the radio designation and who's reporting to that division officer and where that division officer is going. Um, Anthony, you want to weigh in on that? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, communications is so is so important, and and not only that, but when you want to these are things are almost benchmarked, you know. So uh, you you're uh, you're you're um, actually laying out your command organization right over the radio, you know. So so you're benchmarking mark, marking these things, and you know one of the other things I, I always looked at was for an incident commander, stay at the strategic level. You will find that sometimes the guy has to micromanage the scene. You know, first engine, you know, I pull right past here. You don't get that hose line in. Don't get it around the car. You know, now he's operating at the task level. He's not even at the tactical level. So that may be, you know, necessary in some instances when you don't have a lot of staffing or you have um, people that are newer or whatever it happens to be. But the incident commander has to get back to the strategic level as quickly as possible. And I've always been a very big believer in initial scene assignments. Initial scene assignments allow the incident commander to be the incident commander. You know, he doesn't do the job of the company offices by throwing out, you know, all of these sort of task and task oriented orders, you know. 
So I, I think as an incident commander, you have to stay up at that level, which then allows you to break the fire ground. It, it allows you to run the fire ground rather than the fire ground running you. Absolutely. So if you arrive on scene and you're assigned a division face-to-face and it's not announced over the radio, there's nothing that says that you as that division officer cannot get on the radio and say, car 34 is now division two, engine six, truck four and engine 15 are reporting to me. And then when you get to that location, then don't just rely on your radio communication because somebody will most definitely miss that communication. When you get to that location, try to muster up and hurt all the cats for a second and say, hey, I'm here. Everything goes through me. Dave, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah. Like like Anthony said, you, when you start breaking everything down, you start to reduce your span of control. Uh, you know, that sweet spot is between one to three to one to five. And once you start making your groups and divisions um, and you're, you're relying on either line officers to take those positions or chief officers take those positions, you can stay at the strategic level and you can say, okay, um, I need you guys to take, you know, division two. And that's all you should say. They should know that if you're using RECOVS or whatever acronym that your department uses, then they know they're responsible for that. So when you ask for an LCAN, they're giving you that information. When we rewrote the policy in Frederick, we, uh, we, we broke it down tactical command, which is the very first unit officer that arrives on the scenes assumes that tactical command because they're operating in the tactical mode. We were pulling lines. They're supervising their crews. When the chief officer, the first command officer arrives, they assume the strategic command. They don't say that because it's automatically assumed, but they take uh, a stationary command post and uh, they assume that command and they're working at the strategic level. So it's key to, 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 Make sure that you stay in your lane so you're not micromanaging because firemen will be the first one to point out when you start micromanaging them. And if you feel that you have to tell your people to pull a line, go search here, go here, do that, then it's either a failure on your part because you don't trust your people or you don't trust yourself. Anthony always said it best about when other people come to your fire, you want to break up. This is an Anthony Avila quote. You want to break up the opinion brigade so they can't be critiquing your fire. But it's very important if you're a chief officer to trust your people. If you don't trust your people, you have a training issue. You know, and we see that a lot of times where people are micromanaged. If you have to take command, then put the person in a division where you know that that person can succeed. You know, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. If they're in the wrong division, then move them. Um, but Anthony, you want to speak to that? Because not every fire you get the A team. Sometimes you got to move people. Mm-hmm. Well, I always initially for us, uh, you know, our first do ladder, our first arriving ladder on a flat roof building would get the roof and they would have the roof division. Now, you know, that would be, you know, a ladder officer. But I'm a big fan of of eventually having, you know, eyes on, hands off, rather than hands, uh, eyes on, hands on, a company office is eyes on, hands on. So uh, if he's running a division, I think it puts him at a disadvantage. Uh, but there are times that he is going to run that early on until I get a chief up there. But I would always look for a roof division supervisor if I was going to eventually put one up there, like we're going to have pretty extensive roof operation. I would always look for somebody who had truck experience. You know, look, you know, oh, no, 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 okay, listen, stand by or listen, you go take Delta, send Delta to the roof, you know, because I know the Delta division supervisor right now is is because I might have needed Delta first, you know, and I trusted my ladder officer on the roof. But now I got this chief and I don't want him on the roof. That's the last place I want this guy, you know, so I'll send him to Delta and I'll tell him, send the other guy to the roof. I may you know, just make sure, and I'll get on the radio, I'll make sure it's acknowledged and everything else and it's on the radio. But yeah, you know, you you, you got to know your people, you got to know, uh, you know, who you can trust and, and, you know, who you have to sort of support a little bit. You know, I'm not going to use the word not trust, I'm going to use the word support. You know, the people you have to support a little bit more, you know, and, uh, and just as you said in the beginning, there are guys that go up through the ranks without having real experience and, 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 uh, incompetence and confidence. And, you know, that comes over time. But, you know, um, I remember there were times when you know, I was a battalion chief at the time and uh, we had a deputy uh, 
and he, we didn't have a deputy on the shift. So the, the deputy would rotate sometimes, would be an overtime deputy. And I, my guys would say to me, look, don't let him take command. Don't let him take commands. Stay in command. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do that, you know? So, you know, it's uh, something you got to know your people. You know, you know who you can trust, you know who you can't. You know who you have to support more. And, and along know? those lines, if you have that junior officer, say, who's just inexperienced, he's the new battalion chief, and you get there and there's enough division officers. There's nothing that says that you can't, if you're a senior to that person, that you can't declare over the radio that you're the senior advisor. And then you just stand next to him and just essentially whisper to him. But if you really want to diminish, you remember, you're there to build that person. Once you pick up a radio or give an order to a crew walking by, now you just diminish that person's command. And everything that you set out to do, you just basically totally wasted it. So remember that if you are going to declare yourself a senior advisor to try to mentor and build somebody up on the scene is that you really have to have command discipline, not to start commanding the fire and actually working with that chief. Something that I found throughout my career that I always did because sometimes I came from the training academy is instead of telling a chief what to do when you're mentoring them, just ask them a simple question. And a lot of times they'll come to the, their own answer and be able to respond. Dave, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, a hundred percent. When, when uh, you know, you kind of want to guide them in that direction, a, a true leader, a true uh, senior chief officer can give you the idea and make you think that it was your idea all along, make it think that it's their idea all along. So they come to the conclusion that you want, you know, getting back to what Anthony says, knowing your people, you know, I, I would tell new battalion chiefs, you got to get out of your office. You got to get in your vehicle and you have to visit the stations. You have to have one-on-ones first with the, with the company officer and then bring everybody to the kitchen table and just take a pulse. How you all doing? And then you kind of get a read on who needs help, who needs, you know, who doesn't. Um, and that's how you start to learn your people. But if you're staying in your office all the time, or, or I've actually known chiefs that were so introverted that they were afraid to go into a firehouse. Well, when they did, they were automatically looking for an exit so they could get out. Um, you're doing yourself a huge in, in, injustice to yourself and to your people. So, yeah, you've got those inexperienced officers. And, and just because you outrank somebody doesn't mean you have to come on the scene and take command. It's always good to be in that senior advisory role. Like I, when I arrive on the scene, I've got two battalion chiefs working in the vehicle. I'll just sit in the back and listen to the radio. And, hey, you guys need anything from me? Um, I'll go out, take pictures, bring it back. But being that senior advisor and kind of allowing them to maneuver uh, as an incident commander and, and kind of giving them little nudges here and there, it builds their confidence up um, instead of you just coming in and pulling the carpet out from underneath of them and they never get a chance to command a fire, you know, eventually they're not going to have the confidence in themselves. Now, Anthony, if you're a division officer and you have a company from the house of no show up at your fire, you know, this is the company with no firefighters, no house fun, no TV in their firehouse. They don't train, no training. Um, a lot of times I've seen and you hear about where competent incident commanders will just completely minimize them and ask them to essentially do nothing. And what I always say is give that company a tangible task that can be easily verified and hold them to its for example, I need a ladder on every side of this building in my division or what, whatever it may be. But every now and then you get a company that's not stellar. You got to give them a task so you can help build them. Just don't minimize them to the point where they're completely out of the game. Uh, do you want to weigh in on that? Well, you want to make them success oriented, right? You want to make them successful. Um, so uh, if if you can do that, you know, and, and that's something you have to talk about with the battalion chiefs even before that. Hey, listen, all right. We know these guys are like weak, you know, that we know that, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're not up to the same speed as everyone else. So, you know, let's make them successful. However, however, if they're lazy, we're going to make sure that they get some of the tasks that they know they're getting those tasks because they're not stepping up. But if they're, if, if it's a matter of just, you know, confidence and, and competence, I might use them with a company that I trust a lot, you know, and now you have those two companies together and now he's actually being mentored 
by another officer his rank that is, you know, and they're maybe doing the same task. You know, this is where you, you know, you put a junior ladder officer on the roof with a senior ladder officer, you know, of, uh, you know, so now you have those two guys working together. You know, when it's the same thing with pulling hose line. One of the things I think we do really well in North Hudson is our first two engines stretch the first line. You know, so there's always a, a very good, almost never do you have two, two sort of not confident um, and not that well schooled officers. You usually have one good one and one so-so one, you know, so, you know, you might speak to the other officer and say, look, you know, when you have this company in there, if, you know, listen, if, if it's got to be taken care of, you know. Get in there and, and, you know, do the best you can to mentor this guy a little bit, you know, but, but I think sometimes you got to drag these guys a little forward. Other times you have to support them a little forward. And other times when they're not getting it, you have to sort of drag, like beat them a little forward. <laughs> if, if, if you catch my drift. You no, know, it's, it's, yeah, again, you have to know your people, you know. Um, I think that's very well said. You set uh, up for success, marry them up with another company and help push that company forward. Yeah. Dave? Yeah, yeah. Listen, we have three million companies, you know, so we have to we have to marry our companies together. Yeah, I, sorry, Dave. I, that's okay. I, I like the fact that that, that uh, you know you like to to give that company that you know needs a little bit of work. They're not polished like some of the other companies, but you give them a task that you know they will complete, and then you know they'll be successful for it, and, and kind of build them up a little bit, and then maybe even go as far as. Bring them to the command post, hot wash them, and tell them, "Hey, man, you did a really good job with that." Kind of builds their confidence up a little bit. But uh, you know, like you said, if you've got a, a company full of turds, then then they're going to get some shit work, and they understand that uh, you're getting this because you're not performing like you're supposed to be. And we've talked about this, but uh, I don't think anybody comes to work and wants to be bad. Um, but uh, you always have the ability to give them tasks to let them shine a little bit. Absolutely. And one other thing that a lot of company officers miss is they have to remember that information goes up, orders come down. And if the chief is only as good as their company officers, and if you're not relaying the information that that chief needs to make that operation a success, you're you're hurting the entire department and the entire operation. You know, for example, Anthony said in North Hudson, they normally always marry up the first two companies to get a line in place. But if you look at all of America, that isn't the case. That isn't their SOP. So if you're that first two company and you have a complicated stretch, and it doesn't even have to be a three-person firefighting crew. New Haven, everybody has four. Um, I'd have no problem with a company officer on a complicated stretch on a three brace frame wood third floor fire for the officer to get on the radio and say, I need another company to get my line in place. Now, if the chief isn't thinking about that, you gave them information. Now they have to, well, they don't have to, but the chances are that's going to kind of key their mind. And then they're going to assign that co another company to get that line in place for you. Um, the same thing's true with, if you have to, if you get an order for command to put up a 40 foot ladder or a 50 foot ladder. You know, they may not be thinking about all that goes into that at the task level at that time. There's nothing that says the company officer can't get on the radio and say, chief, I'm going to need another company to get this ladder in place. The chances are you're going to get it because in a lot of fire departments, it's not short staffing. It's short on the people that are working. Anthony? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, listen. You know, you're the guy with the with with the, at the center of the issue once you've been given the order. You know, it's like, you know, what do you got? What are you doing about it? What do you need? You know, if you don't tell me what you got, you don't tell me what you're doing, and and most of all, if you don't tell me what you need, you're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. Listen, when we, you know, our our SOP says, you know, first two engines stretch the first line, but if it's above the third floor, third floor and above, the third engine will help them too. You know, so we'll use three engines. And then as soon as that line's ready, that third company will peel back and maybe start to start assisting on a stretch for the second line. You know, um, I, I think that, you know, it's uh, you got to play the game based on the circumstances you're dealing with. Like John Norman said that, you know, let 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 actions dictate the circle. Circumstances dictate actions. Right. You know, the other thing that's really important. Have you ever heard of the ladder of abstracts? No. Okay, the ladder of abstracts is based on uh, the competence of the people that work for you and the how well you know them. 
for instance, I got a brand new officer, right? Well, I got a division commander, okay, and uh, a battalion. And I could say to him, especially because we've set expectations, work out, I could say, look, you got Delta. I don't have to say anything else to him. Or I got a solid lateral, so like, you got the roof. I don't say anything else to him. But if, 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 if they're not high up on a ladder of abstracts, I might have to say to them, look, I need you to think about it. you go back to firefighter one. I need you to, you know, grab the 35 foot ladder, use a low shoulder carry, put it three feet away from the building, pull seven clicks. That's the lowest level almost on the ladder of abstracts, you know, and you don't want to use that on a fire ground. That's more training ground. But the ladder of abstracts and knowing where people are on that allow you to sort of, and you got to understand where they are, allows you to sort of, shrink your order giving you catch my drift on that i do i actually think that's a great way to phrase it and you know for anybody out there that's a company officer listening to this the highest praise a division chief or command can ever give you is when you arrive on a fire ground and you walk up to the command post with your company ready to work and they say go put out the fire that's yeah, the, the that's the highest praise. That's high on the ladder abstract. They know that you know what you're doing. Uh, Dave, weigh in on that. I know you cut out for a second. So um, on the ladder of abstract of knowing your personnel and assigning them the right task. Yeah, absolutely. It goes. It's almost hand in hand with uh, with the chief of the department coming up and said, "You're a hell of a fireman." You know that uh, you know that they recognize that you know you know what you're doing on the fire ground. But yeah, when when you roll up. When we uh, changed in Montgomery County, we changed our box alarm over from four inches to five inches. And that fifth engine was always like the ace in the hole. And when you roll up and it's like, I need you up on the fire floor, put this friggin' fire out, please. Um, that was always like, yep, we're here. And then, of course, you had a little bit of bragging rights afterwards. Hey, thank God we were here because, you know, it would have lost the whole block, you know. So, but yes, you can't get any more praise than that when they know you whirl in and they view your company as Thank goodness you're here. Now we can get some work done. Yeah. You know, quick, quick little story on that, Frank. We got this multiple alarm fire and uh, we have it pretty much knocked down. And, and the, the interior division on the second floor is asking for lights. So this company is coming to the command post and it's, it's, it's a swap guy, an overtime guy, and uh, maybe a detail guy. No, none of the guys were from the company and they were, they were all from other shifts. Um, so I, I just told them, I go, look, we need lights up on the second floor. I said, you know what? The aerial's right here. Use, use the lights off the area. Use the junction block and get it up there, right? So a few minutes go later, I, these guys are taking care of the business. The battalion calls me and says, you know, I don't know, where are the lights? You got lights. I could see, the, the, I could see the, the wire snaking into the building. You got lights. He goes, I don't have lights. I go, yeah, they, they just completed that task. He goes, you want to come in here and take a look? Now, now the incident had de-escalated, you know. So I walk in there, and these guys, all they did, you know that little bubble on top of the junction block, Dude, you know, on, off the reel? Yep. You have the reel, and you plug the lights into it, but on it is that bubble telling you to have power. <laughs> that was the light they put. It was sitting on the kitchen table. <laughs> they wanted it to be romantic. Right? They wanted it to be you, you don't think you got to tell us that, you know, like, but, you know, this is where, like, I learned now, okay, don't ever take anything for granted when – you don't really know your people because they were from a different shift. And one was an acting captain. Mm, trust but verify, right, Dave? That's right. Trust but verify. <laughs> exactly. Have a little bit of faith into them. Um, one other thing that seems to be a pet peeve with some officers is you get a fire. The battalion chief's running the fire. They have enough resources there. And then you have the chief of department who has to come to every single job and then try to take over. It doesn't like try to build the officer and just takes over or comes from home and they got a sloppy t-shirt on, they got jeans on and they, a lot of the officers, they fail to realize that when you arrive on scene and you know, you didn't, you didn't shave, you say for officer chief coming from home, you didn't take the second to shave or at least put on a job shirt or something to look professional. When you show up all disheveled, you're basically saying to your battalion chief, I don't trust you. I, there wasn't a second to spare before I got here. And chiefs are like oblivious to it. It's like, always stop 
and make sure you're presentable. Walk up like you own the place and then ask, you know, do you need anything or can I get you guys coffee and girls coffee or something when everything's this escalated? Just because you're chief of department don't mean you need to go to every fire. Um, Dave, I'll let you weigh in on that first. And even even if you do, you know, if it's a small department or whatever, and the chief goes, you're going there to say like, hey, it really sounds like you got this really under control. I want to take a, you know, make it positive. You know, just because I'm here doesn't mean I'm going to take over. But but on the opposite spectrum, if that chief goes there and says, well, I'm here, I have to take over. You've demeaned your you, you've just basically told your command staff, you know, I don't trust you to do a good job or I'm better than you or 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 like you said, I think the story you had told once before was the dude showed up in a flannel shirt. and You say, what are you here to chop some wood or something? Um, <laughs> you, you have to look your back. Even even when I'm running as the duty chief in Frederick and I show up, if it goes to a multiple alarm, I've got my uniform hanging up. I'll put my uniform on, um, try to brush my hair or put on my baseball hat or whatever. And then I go to the scene and, and I said, hey, you guys need anything? I'm going to take some pictures. Sounds like you got it under control. But, uh, yeah, you just don't have to show – even if you want to, great, be there as, to support and not as to, you know, take it away from them. There, there's a story in the book in, that I just wrote but that both of you contributed to, which I really appreciate. That way people read it. But uh, that I didn't – I left this part out of the story, but it's relevant to this conversation. So um, New Haven got called to Yale New Haven Hospital to the operating room. The rescue got called because um, a lady's arm was caught in a meat grinder. And the officer did an unbelievable job because the surgeon's – you know, some of the world's best surgeons, they wanted to amputate the arm. And he, and he was able to use his command presence to convince them that if they let the rescue work with a limited team, they'd be able to get the arm out. Well, while he convinces these surgeons, the chief of operations shows up from home, like scruff on their face and wearing like civilian clothes. I don't think they even had a fire department shirt or anything on. When they got to the hospital and the chief of operations walked in, the lady from the hospital thought he was a family member and they brought him into the other room and he's like, why am I here? And they started camp counseling him to <laughs> give him a hug that, you know, it was oh going to be God. okay. And they were doing everything possible because they had no idea that he was a fire chief. So I always thought that that was funny. So always look professional, at least have a coat in your car or something when that you can look, look good. Anthony weigh in on that. Uh, well, um, I, I would, uh, I, I think that, well, you, you talk about, I, I would sometimes show up and I might say over the radio, you know, De deputy one is going to remain in service on the scene. Battalion one will retain command, you know, something like that. Or, or, uh, I may, as the incident escalates, I'll say deputy one is going in service, remaining on scene. You know, battalion one will now have command, and I'll just you know be there, sort of helping out or whatever, or handling things behind the scene, you know, something along those lines, and then kind of giving him the the uh, you know the information. Um, generally, with us, um, if you show up on the scene, you're, you're you're in gear, so nobody even knows what the hell you have underneath That's your fine. gear. <laughs> to be honest with you, um, but our chief usually from the chiefs chiefs department, they usually showed up looking looking pretty solid as far as, as those things went. Um, I, I think uh, directors probably caused that to happen. Um, probably one of the best things for them was I never became the chief of the department because, you know, <laughs> you, know you never know what I'm going to show up. Then, you know? Um, no, I think it's all how you present yourself when you get there. If they don't feel that you're yeah. just there to check up on them. You know, something that I would do is if I just popped in at a fire that was, you know, everything was under control. I'd always, I had the union credit card because so I was union president too. So I would always pull up if it was nothing because I just wanted to go to fire. And I would say, hey, I came to get you guys coffee and girls coffee. But if there's anything you need first, I'll do it. And then that always like lowered the temperature, like, oh, he, he knows we got this. Mm -hmm. And then I go get him coffee if there was nothing, nothing to do. So you got to have confidence in your people and build and build them up. One thing that Anthony does a phenomenal job and North Hudson does a phenomenal job. And you taught me the term because I never even heard of it until I read one of your books was tactical reserve. You're big on having personnel that you can put into the game. And one of the things that I always put in my FDIC class is I always say, how many people in this class have a writ team of three people? And still to this day, so many hands go up. And I use an, exa I use an example and I say, okay, 
So if you were put in charge of a funeral and you had to go to the wife or husband after their member was lost and they said they only wanted three pallbearers, what would you do? And people are quick. Oh, no, I would explain that we need six to bury them with dignity. I'm like, (laughs) okay, so in sunshine and fresh air to transfer stairs and to give somebody a funeral with dignity, you need six, but you only need three at a fire. So why aren't you at least calling another company to the scene? You have a radio. There's nobody on scene that says you can't call for more help. And I think that North Hudson really figured that out with the tactical reserve. Can you explain that, Anthony? And then we'll go to Dave. Well, we, um, we, I always tried to have my, my rule of thumb was if I don't have three companies in reserve while the incident is still escalating, I'm striking another loan. And I'm not, I'm not going to get that right away. You know, I'm, just, I'm looking for that. I'm looking to have people have nothing to do, which means we're probably stabilizing this incident. And, and at some point when I have a lot of these people, I'm going to probably start to release them. But one of the things I put in the new book, and, and I did an article about it, it was called The Rat. And The Rat is the, the RIT Assist team. And the RIT Assist team comes from, and, and we don't use it in North Hudson because I did it after, we, after I retired. I don't know if anybody uses it, but it makes so much sense to me. So, you, so because we have three men RIT team, right? So let's say my RIT team's in place. I got a couple of companies in my tactical reserve. So I turn around and I tell Engine 4, all right, you guys are a rat. Now, Engine 4 is still available to go into, stretch an additional line or whatever. But while they're the rat, if the RIT team gets activated, they automatically double the number of the RIT team. All right. They automatically do that. So let's say you're my division command. You say, look, I need another line on the second floor. All right. Look, I'm sending engine four up. Now I'll turn around. I'll sell engine three. You guys are the rat. So they're they're a, a dedicated resource only if the RIT goes to work. Now, the, the nice thing about that is not everybody can be a RIT team, but everybody can be a rat because all they're basically doing is probably, you know, helping carry the equipment in. And, and you know, they, they would have some very basic ideas of like uh, – you know, carries and drags, how to use a drag rescue device, uh, how to set up a dance maneuver, that, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're just there to and, – and this now, it, it, um, it would cause the incident commander to strike another alarm when he doesn't have these additional companies in, in, in tactical reserve. You know, not only because I, I may need companies to do stuff because, you know, shit happens on a fire ground – but God forbid a three-man writ has to go to work. Now, you know, it, it kind of – it's sort of a mechanism to reduce the frenzy because now I got six guys automatically. And, I, you know, because what happens when you have a real writ operation? What happens to your command structure? What happens to your operational structure? Everybody, you know, I'm not an expert on writ or anything like that, but it just makes sense to me to have something in place before that even happens – you know, the RIT team is they're, they're doing all their ladders and raising them all over the building, et cetera. But once they're settled and uh, and operate and sort of standing by as the RIT, well, why can't I have another company sort of ready to back them up if they go in? And here's another thing that I put in the new book. Why can't the RIT team, once they are finished setting up your fire ground and, and uh, you know, secondary egress and all the things they do, why can't they become part of your accountability team? Why can't they, because how many departments actually have an accountability officer running a command board? Why can't the RIT run the command board, right? So, because what's the most important thing for the RIT? Know where everybody is. So the RIT runs the command board, the RAT supports the RIT, and it it all comes from tactical reserve, you know? So it's it's a little, I don't know, it might be a little bit far-fetched, but to me, it makes just makes so much sense. No, it makes perfect sense because everybody wants to go to the fire. I mean, too many chiefs out there look yeah. at additional companies like change in their pocket and they're at the store and they're like, oh, I don't, I, I need another dollar. Uh, Dave, weigh in on calling for help. Yeah, I think either you said it or somebody said it a long time ago that everybody wants to come to your fire. Um, when we have you know, we have a rapid intervention company, which is automatically dispatched on a full assignment or a box alarm. Um, and that unit is responsible for the initial rapid intervention. They'll take over for the two out. It's a three. We're moving into four person staffing now in Frederick. So it could be a four person 
crew. Um, the moment they know they have a working incident, a rapid intervention dispatch is automatically sent, which will give you another three companies. So you're starting to build out where you, you're going from three to nine. Um, and then based on the size of the building, that's where your second chief comes into play or even that senior advisor saying, hey, they're operating on the Charlie side. You may need to have a second rapid intervention company working on the Charlie side, as well as one on the alpha side, because those crews are operating on the second floor. Or maybe it's a big box store. You know, six guys can't get into a big box store to find somebody. You might need 15, 20 people to really have a, a robust rapid intervention company. So as a command officer, if you know your resources are limited, call for them early. If you're in, a, in, a, in an urban environment where there's a lot of people right away, call for them early. You can always send them home and you don't need them, but nobody does. Mm -hmm. Nobody minds coming to your fire, especially if they get a chance to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another thing when we were talking about um, key in and having the incident commander or the command kind of figure something out, we were talking about later arriving companies, uh, later arriving companies. One thing that I, I, I've witnessed, which defies logic is you'll have a later arriving company come in command is so focused on what's going on even though things are de-escalating and when that extra company comes instead of saying all right i need your company to tarp everything on the floor below it almost gets missed and it's something anthony avillo you know you have a great term for it is that you know after the fire you need to wrap the occupants in cotton you know, you've been a big influence on, on my career, but that starts at the actual fire. So, you know, if you're third or fourth, when I was an engine officer and I was fourth due and I knew that there was a one room fire and there was nothing there, I'd come to, when I went to the command post, I tell my crew to grab a line because New Haven, everybody brings their own line. And I tell the hydrant person to bring two tarps. They'd have them right under their arm. Now, if something happened, I missed something and we went to work, you can drop the tarps at the front door. Somebody will pick them up. It'll key somebody's mind. But nobody's really thinking about everybody wants to get to work. Well, if the fire's out, there's nothing left to do. Why don't you want to make a positive impact? Why don't you kind of key command thing and say, hey, we got tarps. It looks like they got it. Do you want us to tarp the, the floor below? And I think most command officers out there would be like, absolutely. David first. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, we just had a fire in my local uh, volunteer uh, company. Um, the house was a pretty much lost. We, we were able to maintain a portion of the house and uh, we were actually able to go in and, and do a lot of salvage. We saved a lot of pictures. They had a lot of antique firearms and things like that. That meant more to those people, even though they lost their entire house, but to have those photographs and, and for the younger people out there, that's a picture of it's on your phone, but it's actually a piece of paper. Um, to give them those photographs that they'll never be able to have again meant more to them. Uh, family Bible, things like that. So, so salvage is important. Nobody wants to do it, but uh, again, when you have these reserves, um, go start tarping the basement. You, you may have people that are running a business out of their basement, and that computer is their life. If you can at least get a tarp over that, save their computer, you may save their home business. So, well, it, nobody's it, ever called City Hall to say, "Hey, the fire department did a great job cutting a hole in my roof or stretching down the hall." Mm -hmm. It's always about their belongings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's uh, un unfortunately the fire department, we have more of a, you know, break things mentality than save things mentality. And and I don't mean saving a building. I mean, yeah, just what you're talking about, you know, the, the salvage end of it, you know, and uh, that again has to be if it's important to the incident commander, it's important to everybody else. And it's got to be that way, you know. Um, but that, that's what you know, if you look at the people. It's it's sort of like the opposite where, you know, you say the uh, the first impression is always the, the, the best, the, you know, first impression is always the one that lasts. It's not really when you have a fire. It's, it's oftentimes the last impression. What did we leave them with? We left them with a load of rubble, all kinds of damage, broken windows, all kinds of stuff. We didn't explain why we did anything. No, they have no idea why we did anything that we did. And we just, you know, see you later. You know, well, we left them with, with the police department who, you know, they don't know either. You know, I think you have to maintain that sort of whole, um, you know, uh, um, cycle of, of of operations from taking care of them from the beginning when, you know, we're, we're, we're doing primary search and everything else to taking care of them at the end. To, you know, it's just just little things, letting them like letting them know where to get a fire report and 
you know, um, as, as Dave said, you know, just, you know, saving some of their uh, saving some of their valuables. You know, you don't know what's valuable to people, you know. Now, while that's having been said, um, uh, the other thing we have to understand as an incident commander is when uh, when we can't save something, when uh, uh, when we are not. Uh, when when we have to be careful about risking our people uh, for something that's going in a dumpster tomorrow, you know, and, and and that's a very big piece of the puzzle. We we hurt and injure a lot of firefighters in what I like to call the structural carcass, you know, and it's happened. We had a guy, and I don't know exactly where it was, but a guy was they were they were overhauling, and it was a truss structure, and friggin' floor collapsed and killed a guy, you know. Once 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 the life hazard has been secured. And, and we're dealing in buildings that change the rules like trust construction, structural carcasses. No firefighter should ever die in those buildings, you know, but it happens. And a lot of times I'm, I know I'm getting off subject a little bit, but a lot of times it happens because one, we don't like to lose two. Sometimes we stay in a little longer than we should because of our mentality of saving stuff, you know? So we got to be careful sometimes with, with how far we go, depending on the building, you know, you got to know your building construction. You got to know, you know, what the fire did to the building. And, you know, this may be sort of opening another whole little hallway of, of discussion here, but it's no, something I believe And I think it goes back to benchmarks, you know, your time benchmarks. Are you losing track of time? Are you getting emotionally involved in your fire that you're not, you're not taking into account time? So this is actually a good time to talk about some of those command benchmarks. One of my personal pet peeves is we know generally the the two first benchmarks are, is the first line in place. A lot of times, you know, you could see it, but the, the most important benchmark to me is, you know, what's the condition of the primary search and is it announced by geographic location? Don't just say primary search is complete, make it by geographic location. You wouldn't buy property in Florida without going to see it. So, you know, primary search is second floor complete. That way you ensure that the entire, um, structure is complete. Weigh in on those benchmarks, primary search, secondary search. Here's a good question to start off. When do you think that the secondary search should be declared? Because in some fire departments, you'll hear over the radio, primary search, second floor complete. And three minutes later, you'll hear, even if it's another company, which ideally is who we want to do the secondary you know, secondary search complete while the fire is still actively raging. Is that too early? Well, what's both of your experience? And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer with this, but what's your preference of when that secondary search benchmark is called? I'll start with David. The the primary, obviously, you want right away. Uh, we're big on ensuring the occupant status, um, especially when the first arriving uh, unit uh, arrives on a scene, they're giving their on-scene report, they're doing their 360, and we need to know what the occupant status is. It could be unknown, it could be accounted for, or trapped. Um, most of the time, it's unknown. I'll assign an ambulance crew when they arrive on the scene, go find the homeowners. I don't care if you got to knock on 10 doors, go find the homeowners. Um, all the while, we're working on our primary search. Um, once that primary search is complete, um, we should be concentrating on making sure that the fire's being compartmentized and then extinguished. Uh, once it's extinguished, then I'm going to go ahead and assign another crew to the uh, the second search, but it's not going to be right after the first search. You're going to have to get conditions lifted a little bit so you can do that in depth, see what's going on. You know, if, if you do a primary search of the second floor and then you throw another company in there to do a secondary search and they're still putting the fire out, you're going to miss the same stuff that they missed. So it's going to be once the fire's knocked and you've got conditions lifted a little bit. Chief Avila. Yeah, I completely agree with Dave. You know, you, you don't run a, a secondary immediately after a primary or even, even at the same time, they just follow them up, you know? Uh, yeah. It's, it's when conditions are, are, are better. Um, when the building has even the building's been checked to stability, we've done a bit of a safety survey. We've lit up the area a little bit. You know, some of these, listen, secondary search is, you know, it's, it's done when we, you know, when, you know, it's, it's done once the, once the situation is de-escalating, uh, it's, it's done once the fire is knocked down. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any rush for a secondary search. You know, I, I really don't, uh, primary search, absolutely. Um, but not a secondary search. Secondary search should be, uh, a, a later on, but not missed. 
type type of operation. You know, you were talking about the benchmarks, though. You know, one of the things I think we need to do in a benchmark now is, and, and it should be the benchmark, water on the fire, right? Water on the fire. You know, your company offices should be uh, in tune with that and conditioned with that, you know, that they say, okay, water is on the fire. Boom, that's a benchmark, right? Because now other things can occur on your fire ground that, that maybe couldn't occur until water was on the fire. So same as a primary, I'm thinking that, you know, and I put this in the book too, I think water on the fire has to be a benchmark now in, in the sort of in the world we, we live in because there are people who are waiting to hear that to do other things. And, and not only that, the other thing as, as the incident commander standing outside is if they say they have water on the fire and from the outside, it doesn't look like water's on the fire it could mean you have a whole other problem. So I always say, you know, one of, even for individuals taking promotional exams, you know, one of those key things is you always got to evaluate uh, what's being said on the radio versus what you're seeing. Because while we know there's always a little disconnect, if there's a big disconnect, you generally have a big problem. Dave? Yeah, the, the water on the fire, that is a benchmark for us in Frederick. Um, you know, let, let us know we got a line on the fire. And is it matching what the incident commander is seeing? More importantly, like you said, Frank, there's other companies that are waiting to do other things. We preach ventilation discipline. You know, it's a, it's a, a systematic thing where the engine and the truck company are communicating. I got water on the fire. Okay, I can start taking the windows of the fire room to start alleviating those conditions. Um and, and hey, we got the fire knock. Okay, now we've checked for extension. Maybe we can start a fan and start getting some good ventilation going. But it allows those companies that are on the outside, your outside vent man or whatever, hey, I actively hear water flowing. I see water on the fire. They're saying water's on the fire. I'm going to go ahead and ventilate. So it's a disciplined thing, but it's definitely something that needs to be broadcasted. Plus, it also allows for that time, you know, your elapsed time of how long has this fire been burning? And if it is knocked, what's the structural stability now? Anthony, um, do you in North Hudson, do you have a recommended time that dispatch should say to the incident commander that a certain amount of time has lapsed? Yeah, they do. I believe they do. I think it's 15, 30, 45 an hour. And then after that, I think it's every half hour. You're an hour and a half. Okay. Fire. I, I think, don't quote me on that, but I know there are benchmarks. They will let you know, command, be advised, you're 15 minutes into this fire. Be advised, you're 30 minutes. It might be every 15 minutes. Now I'm thinking, and usually what happens after that is I start thinking, okay, I got I to gotta get a, a command report together in the next couple of minutes, you know? So that will cue me in to get some division reports at that point, you know? But yeah, they, they do that. I think that's a, was a, a real sort of, um, aid in in sort of you know just just you know keeping you in the in the time frame game dave what's uh frederick do for yeah, uh it's, it's from time of dispatch so the first idr is going to be at 20 minutes from the time of dispatch and then it's no more than 20 minutes after that um we do have some long responses but um that's letting you know that for since time of dispatch 20 minutes has elapsed and that's how long this fire has been burning. Do you have water on the fire yet? And and like like Anthony said, you know, you can start getting those reports, those LCANs from your divisions and your group supervisors so you can put your command report together so you can give, you know, communications, you know, your your update because the chiefs are listening if they're at headquarters or whatever. They're, they're trying to hear what's going on. Do I need to come? Is it escalating? Is it de-escalating? But that benchmark that 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 idr that incident duration uh reminder is letting you know elapsed time is happening and you should be doing things especially after 20 minutes you might need to conduct your first par check of the units that are in the in the in the idlh so it, it is part of the benchmarks and and i think most of the, the washington metropolitan areas they're using idrs whether it be 15 minutes since time of dispatch or 20 minutes since time of dispatch and then it's no more than 20 minutes after that and the, and the incident commander is the only one that can shut those idrs down oh okay i think i think that's that's pretty good um we're at the witching hour so we'll kind of go around the horn here. One thing that Anthony was talking about earlier was about the incident commander being on that strategic level and the company officer being on the tactical level and then the firefighters on the task level. Um, I don't know. I just lost my train of thought. I had a, a Joe Biden moment here on uh, politics, <laughs> politics and tactics. Oh, I got it back. Look at that. So I, I'm the, I was going to be like Mitch McConnell, so I'll be bipartisan. Uh, so, <laughs> 
it, remember that the best part, if you're one of those chiefs who like to work with your hands, if you're working with your hands, you're not working with your mind. But if you like to work with your hands, the opportunity to do that is on the training ground. When the companies are training, that's where you can go and show some leadership and go first and be involved in a task that you normally wouldn't be involved in and then step back. You'll you'll earn some respect. But just because you're a chief doesn't mean you should sit in your office. You got to get out of your office on the training ground and train. For example, if your department's doing live burns, and I know a lot of departments that do live burns, but don't have the command officers come to command the live burns. Now, I'm not saying you have to have the command officer command the live burn all day long. When I became the drill master, New Haven used to do live burns with the companies and they wouldn't have any chief officer come down. And it's like, that makes absolutely no sense. I don't need the chief officer to be there all day long, but I need them at least be there for one evolution to run one fire and then they can leave. And I'll rotate the three chiefs that are on duty in there for that day. And that way, I at least know they're getting their hands on it. They can see what their personnel are doing. They can see where there's deficiencies. And you know what's funny? By doing it that way, where it didn't look like it was so burdensome that they only had to come down for one when they didn't come down at all before that, they would all stay. They they wouldn't leave. They would they would stay. They'd participate in the other. They'd watch the crew. They'd talk to their personnel. But it was like, oh, the training division isn't like, you know, harassing me. You know, they they because it was fun, they would stay. Um, let's go around the horn about training and anything else that you want to say to to wrap this up. And, uh, you know, thank you to Anthony Avillo, who's been a mentor. I hold you in the highest esteem, Anthony. You have taught me in the fire service. So, Ditto, brother. you know, the, on the political end, the only thing that I've been really happy with is that John Alston finally um, did away with your alphabet privilege and you're not listed first on fire engineering's letterhead anymore. But your impact on the fire service is unbelievable. And we really appreciate you taking the time to come on Politics and Tactics Tonight, which you were a founding member of this before you broke off with Duffy. So uh, Dave and I- I was on the inaugural show. You were, you were. You, I was the Republican. I think Duffy was the Democrat. We used you as the disenchanted. I was disenchanted. I'm still the disenchanted. So, so two things real quick. Number one, uh, you talk about uh, McConnell. Um, do you ever see the picture they show side by side of him and Jagger? Jagger's 80. He's 81. It says, look what a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll can do for you. Oh, I love it. I, that's so goodness. McConnell looks like, he looks like he's got one foot in the grave. He looks like a skeleton. Well, Jagger looks like a skeleton, but he's got hair right. and he rocks out. You know? And he still sings. So, I can still sing. The other thing you talk about training, I used to be the uh, the victim in the writ training, and uh, th- and and we and eventually we would build the writ training up, and eventually it would be in this warehouse, and everybody would be hooded, and they'd have to come and find me with a pass device on and uh, and the um, pack trackers, and they'd have to get me in a skid and get me out, and they would beat the living shit out of me. I mean. I would come out of there like, oh, because, you know, listen, what are they doing? They're dragging you, they're, they're, they're do, converting your harness and all that, and they're not being easy. It's just like when the, the master streams always aim for the command post, you know. You give them that opportunity, you know, they see that you're in there and, you, and, you, and you, you're playing the game with them, you know, and uh, that's why, you know, and this is a whole nother show, that's why I think the incident commander needs to be out in front of the building. I agree. I love it. <laughs> then somebody never coached a game from the locker room. <clears throat> David, a shot across the bow. It's okay. The I'm in front of the building. I'm just in a climate controlled environment where I don't have to listen to people yelling and screaming all the time. But uh, well, I don't understand what they're saying because none of them are speaking right. English. Just so you know, Frederick's last fire, the firefighters were all hot, dehydrated. Dave's like, let him eat cake. I'm nice and comfortable in here. I, I don't think I don't take command like like it was when in my in my previous life. But you know, you're 100 correct, Frank. Being a chief officer, being part of senior staff, you know, we have we're beta testing uh, the second part of the uh, from the Ball Road report from from Josh Laird's uh, um, line of duty death. We're doing safety and survival, preventing the mayday and things like that. So all of senior staff, from the fire chief all the way down to to us assistant chiefs and all the deputies, we went out on the training grounds and we went through the four stations that, that uh, they had put together and, and uh, yeah, it beat our ass, but it was really good training. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I look at it as if I can get out of the office and put my gear on and do stuff, I'm happy because the work is always going to be in the office. When I go back, it'll still be there. 
but to be able to to continue to put my gear on and and to participate, uh, pull a hand line, you know, maybe command a few things, but then after that, we'll rotate the Chiefs through, and and I'm going to go in with the crew. You know, it still keeps my skills fresh. It keeps me fresh, and it also shows the younger guys that hey, he he's one of us, still one of us, even though he's wearing a white shirt. He's still a fireman and he still wants to go in and, and do the job. And, and I think that builds your credibility up, but it also makes you human. And it shows that, you know, you're willing to go first, make the mistakes, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. So 100 percent, get get those senior staff guys out there, get them involved in the training, build up your credibility. Very well said. It's an honor to have both of you on tonight. That's it for politics and tactics. Remember that when you are a chief and you're commanding the fire Every fire, something goes right. And then you go to City Hall and you talk about budgets and who did this wrong and who did that wrong. When you got to bring problems to City Hall, remember, always say something positive about your department. Let them know what a great job your department did, you know, what this one company did on this medical or this fire. Don't get into a habit of speaking to the political class in America and always saying what the budget problem is, what the disciplinary problem is. It's a trap and it only diminishes your department and your own command. Remember, you're not a politician. You're an advocate for the men and women that serve the community. And anytime you talk to a politician, there are times where you have to talk about discipline. You have to talk about budget problems, but always either start or end the conversation with something positive. The men and women under your command did leave them with a good impression. That's it for politics and tactics tonight. Again, honor to have Anthony Avillo, one of the original members, the original gangster on, I think his family owns a trash company too, but the original gangster <laughs> on politics and tactics and Dave, and we miss Sam Bellani, who's away tonight. Mark, take us off. And uh, on behalf of Fire Engineering, thank you, everybody. Hope to see you at FDIC. Check out Anthony's new book. Peace.